Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandavel disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Samira Moyadin. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight, he figured they were hearing firecrackers. His son wasn't quite so sure. Within a few moments, Trey Filter was tackling an armed man after the deadly shooting at the Super Bowl victory parade in Kansas City. Fear for the forgotten. Jan Eglin says we all need to rethink who gets help and when around the world. And after speaking with people who have fled terrifying experiences in Darfur, he says Sudanese refugees should be at the top of our list. Stout-hearted fellow and Irish bartender sparks outrage by dismissing the traditional two-step process for pouring a perfect pint of Guinness. But we hear from a professor who says the science doubles down on steps one and two. Keeping things grounded, after U.S. lawmakers spark fears of a space-based Russian nuclear threat, we ask an American expert what's going on up there and how worried we should be on Earth. Delivery under pressure, NATO's Secretary General says he is confident the United States will come through with help for Ukraine despite the fact the latest aid package did not make it through Congress. And common ancestors. An American professor reveals that great apes raz one another, much like humans. But what superficially seems annoying may really be about building trust. As it happens, the Thursday edition, radio that promises to tease out the details. It was supposed to be a party. It turned into yet another deadly mass shooting. Police in Kansas City released more details today about the violence that unfolded at the Super Bowl parade. Here is Police Chief Stacy Graves. This appeared to be a dispute between several people that ended in gunfire. During the overnight hours, we learned there are 23 victims of yesterday's shooting. One of our victims, Elizabeth Galvin, 43 years old, died. We are still learning about her, but know that she is beloved by many. To her friends and family, we are with you. And we are working tirelessly to investigate her murder. The 22 victims age range between eight years old and 47 years old. At least half of our victims are under the age of 16. As mentioned yesterday, we have subjects detained, two of which are juveniles. Kansas City Police Chief Stacy Graves speaking earlier today. Trey Filter was at the parade with his wife Casey and their kids. When the gunfire started, they were right there and the couple acted. We reached him today back home in Mays, Kansas. Trey, did you hear or see any signs of that dispute that that police are referring to that started all of this? We don't know any of the details surrounding anything prior to what you saw us doing. So what what triggered things for you? Well, we were enjoying the day and everything was over. So we started to work our way back to the vehicle and uh, we were in a sea of people, of course. Uh, We heard a handful of shots thought that they were most likely firecrackers because mm-hmm. of just the heavy police presence that was there. You um, couldn't even imagine there that was, there's someone with no, people with guns were there was running no around. One, no one there was, was afraid. There were so many cops. There was a military presence where they had 50 calibers on the rooftops. I mean, if anything, we were all proud to be there. I, I was not frightened at all. So um, when did it shift from that. Oh, your kids? Sorry, how how old are they, and how many were with you? I have two boys. One's fifteen, and one's twelve. And so, when did it shift from? Oh, that was probably firecrackers, to something is seriously yeah, wrong. Um, my son said, "What? Is, you think that was gunshots?" And I said, "I doubt it." With this many cops, 
and then we see a commotion. This was all happening behind us slightly. Mm-hmm. So some people were running, some people in the crowds weren't. You know, uh, there were a couple cops darting through the crowd. There was cop cars starting to come and go quickly in a dangerous fashion, you know. So I heard, get him. And the moment I heard that, I just looked to my left and I seen somebody coming by running Mm -hmm. and I just got on him. There was another gentleman, Paul. I hit him, then Paul hit him. The guy got away twice and we we had, I jumped back on him and we held him down. Uh, At that point, we were just kind of high-fiving, hey, we got a bad guy, you know. And um, then they start yelling, there's a gun, there's a gun, there's a gun. So I um, begin to put my hand under him, like his butt belly area, trying to feel for a gun. I couldn't feel anything, and so we were just working hard to keep him down. And that gun, actually, he was running with it, and it was an assault rifle. And I didn't see this, but it went flying out of his hands, and my wife actually obtained it and pulled it away. So instead of being over there, she was right in the thick of it. Yeah, she had the the wherewithal to to grab it and and get it away, as far away as possible, right? Mm -hmm. An assault rifle. Yes, (sighs) ma'am. Yeah, she said she thought it was fake at first and then picked it up and it certainly wasn't. Another gentleman stood there by her side while we waited. They were trying to film it. They were a typical teenager, <laughs> the older one. The, uh, the younger one was a little more yeah. beside himself, but yeah. it was just something cool Dad did that day. Nobody knew that it was so so many, so many much tragedy was unfolding. You know, yeah. How long did you and the other bystander pin this person down? It felt like at least a minute, but I'm, it was probably only 30 seconds. But yeah, it's just a fear of knowing that like, people yelling there's a gun and I don't know where it is. You know, I certainly can sympathize with what cops go through. Yeah. Well, you know. yesterday <clears throat> afternoon, I was having a conversation with a mother who had lost her son in a, in a school shooting. And it was that conversation was happening around the time this was all unfolding. And, you know, wow. you reacted when you heard gun. Uh, is this something as these stories continue to happen in the United States? Is this something that you guys talk about as a family or worried, worry about? Had you ever thought about it until yesterday? Um, I, I, don't, I don't know how to, how to respond to that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I, I happen to think that um, there's probably thousands of other men that would have done the same thing right then and there mm-hmm. here in Kansas. Mm-hmm. And we're very proud of Kansas. Yeah. Well, it was a day to celebrate. Yes, ma'am. We were um, we were happy to attend the second one um, and have that time with our children, and we're big Chiefs fans, and mm-hmm. it's just unfortunate. We really think about the family and the poor gal that's <coughs> passed, and it's mm-hmm. just a, a lot to take in. Yeah, Lisa Lopez Galvin, the 43-year-old mother that we heard, uh, our listeners just heard the police uh, at the news conference talking about. She was a really popular Tejano DJ, wow. Taste of Tejano was the name of the show on KKFI, wow. I think. I know you don't live in Kansas City, but did you or your wife ever listen to that show? I mean, did you know no, any ma'am. of the victims? No. And children, so many children hurt, uh, hurt as well. It's, yeah, uh, again, we were, we were on our way back. Once the cops pulled me off, we didn't stick around. We just got, we just left. Did they so question you after? We were driving back. No, I mean, mm-hmm. I just, I was very worked up, and mm-hmm. they just pulled me off, you know, and... I was just interested in finding my kids and my old lady and getting out of there, you know. I figured it was just some some jerk with a gun, you know. I didn't know he already hurt all these people. Have you guys as a family a whole, had a moment to just no, breathe and no, we process barely it all? let the dogs out when we returned home. Yeah. We barely had time to let the dogs out when we've got news crews out front. and The kids, um, I'm sure some of the gravity of it has uh, set in slightly, but we haven't. We got them to school. There was nothing for them to do here today, productive. So we just try to conduct ourselves normally and when you, move forward, you know. Yeah, I know you acted in the moment. When you found out more about what happened and the magnitude of what happened, the children, you know, you have children. I wonder how how you and, and your wife, Casey, sort of processed well, we, that, the magnitude of Well, I almost told it. those boys to run down there and play with those kids. That's the ones I'm thinking. 
So hopefully when things slow down this evening, we can have a chance to to kind of soak it in here and see. I hope you get you know, that what's time. What's going on? Yeah, I hope you get yeah. that time and, and some peace, Trey. Uh, thank you for your time. Okay, I appreciate it. Thank you. Be well. Trey Filter was at the Super Bowl parade in Kansas City yesterday. We reached him today at home in Mays, Kansas. Today, the White House confirmed what had made for startling headlines late yesterday. Intelligence suggesting Russia is working on a space-based nuclear weapon designed to target Western satellite technology. The announcement came after Republican Congressman Mike Turner demanded the declassification of information about what he described as a national security risk. Todd Harrison is an aerospace engineer and space security expert with the American Enterprise Institute. We reached him in Washington, D.C. So we've heard from the White House that they, they're confirming this, but they say it's it's not operational, this technology, they, that it can't cause physical destruction on Earth. Are you worried? I have been worried for some time about the threat Russia and other nations, quite frankly, pose to our space systems because we're heavily dependent on them and we've got a lot of vulnerabilities in space. So I think this new development that we're hearing about out of Russia, um, it just heightens that concern. If it were operational, what would it be able to do? Well, we don't know the details yet. If indeed it is something that violates the Outer Space Treaty, uh, I'll say that there are not a lot of limitations in the Outer Space Treaty uh, on what kind of weapons can be placed in space. One thing that is specifically prohibited is the placement of nuclear weapons uh, in space. If that turns out you know, to be what this is, uh, we know that nuclear weapons can have a broad, indiscriminate effects in space because we tested capabilities back like that back in the 1960s. Both the U.S. and the Soviet Union, we saw uh, the devastating effects they had, broad, indiscriminate effects, uh, and that's why we agreed to not use them anymore. Does the timing signal anything to you? Why do you think that they're getting this intelligence now? What we do know about the timing is this was not sudden, uh, that this intelligence had been shared with Congress weeks ago. This is not something that just happened overnight. We're all just learning about it mm-hmm. this week uh, because Representative Turner you know, sent that letter to other members of Congress. Uh, but this is really part of a, a you know, longstanding uh, set of space threat briefings that Congress has been receiving and has been increasingly alarmed about. If you go back to around 2015 and 2016, the threat briefings that Congress was getting about what Russia and China were doing in space is actually what led two members of Congress to start the push for creating a separate military service for space. And that was a bipartisan effort. Mm-hmm. You know, Representative Mike Rogers from Alabama, a Republican, and Jim Cooper uh, from Tennessee, a Democrat, uh, that started that effort. And then, of course, most people didn't learn about it until President Trump picked up on it years later. Do you feel that the fact that they that they have those briefings, they've seen this intelligence, they're in the process of declassifying it further, as I understand it, does that give you the sense that they are becoming less lax, as you put it? I think it's an encouraging sign, for sure, um, that we're being more open and transparent about the intelligence data. Um, that often, you know, reflects a confidence in that uh, intelligence. Uh, And when you open it up for public scrutiny, I think that that furthers the confidence uh, in intelligence, because if there's something that might have been misconstrued or might have been missed uh, by our intelligence analyst, that'll be picked up uh, when it's opened up for public scrutiny. Um, But also, I think what's encouraging is what's been going on for years within the military, and that is to switch to types of space systems that are uh, less vulnerable to these forms of attack, uh, that are more resilient, um, that will, you know, uh, build in the types of defenses that we need to have uh, in our space systems, given the, the dangerous environment we're facing. Russia is downplaying the news, as I'm sure you've seen and heard. A spokesperson for the Kremlin is implying that 
that all of this is, in, in their words, a, quote, malicious fabrication to get Congress to support military spending on Ukraine. What do you make of that? Well, of course they would say that, <laughs> whether it was true or not. Uh, you know, Russia is always going to try to spin this to their favor. I think that Russia should be very concerned uh, about, you know, additional U.S. funding for Ukraine, because that is the thing that will turn the tide uh, against Russia in that conflict. And so if this is a motivator for members of Congress uh, to stop dithering about the weapons funding for Ukraine uh, and actually pass that funding bill, uh, then maybe it serves a good purpose. Members of Congress should be reminded of the threat that Russia poses to the United States directly in space uh, and where we can aid other countries in fighting them uh, that you know, diminishes Russian military capabilities without putting any of our own lives uh, at risk. Uh, we ought to be taking those opportunities when we have them. Uh, we know the Canadian government was briefed on this intelligence uh, as well, uh, as we understand it. But if, in fact, this is a, a big breakthrough, you know, on, on the part of the Russians in, in terms of this technology, are you sensing a, a sort of new kind of arms race for these kinds of weapons and, and to defend against them? Well, I, if it turns out that this is some sort of a nuclear weapon they are considering placing in space, uh, I don't think that there's any chance we would want to follow suit and mimic them. Uh, it's not a useful weapon uh, because detonating a nuclear weapon in space has broad indiscriminate effects. Um, we would not do that. We wouldn't do that to ourselves. We would do it to our allies and partners. We are responsible actors in space. Um, I don't think Russia would actually use it either uh, because they have so much to lose and and that's something that would turn the entire world against Russia uh, if they actually detonated a nuclear weapon in space. So, you know, I'm not sure what to make of that, but I do not expect that he, even if that's what it turns out to be, I don't expect that we're going to try to copy them and go down that path. I, will, I think what it does, though, is continue the path that we've been on uh, to develop more robust space defenses of our own. Todd, thank you. Thank you. Glad I could do it. Todd Harrison is an aerospace engineer and space security expert with the American Enterprise Institute. We reached him in Washington, D.C. In Ukraine, forces are on the verge of retreating out of Avdivka, a city in the country's southeast, which has been a long-time strategic target for Russia. It's a development that has NATO's Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg warning that Ukrainian forces are running out of key supplies. Today, Mr. Stoltenberg was asked about a potential aid package from the United States which failed to pass through U.S. Congress after a vote to confirm the bill was blocked by House Speaker Mike Johnson this week. I expect the U.S. Congress uh, to agree a package uh, uh, for uh, Ukraine uh, because there is a broad majority in the Congress for supporting Ukraine. And I visited the United States uh, and spent uh, much time also uh, in the Congress uh, meeting uh, politicians from both sides of the aisle. uh, And uh, they confirmed the message that actually there is a broad support for Ukraine. And also met with the Speaker of the House, uh, uh, Mike Johnson, and we actually agreed a joint statement where it's clearly stated that uh, President Putin must not win uh, in Ukraine. And of course, that requires support from all NATO allies, because if President Putin wins in Ukraine, uh, it uh, it's also uh, a challenge uh, for us. Uh, It will uh, be um, a message to authoritarian leaders, not only Putin, but also uh, to uh, President Xi, that when they use military force, they get what they want. Then, of course, the fact that uh, the U.S. has not been able to make a decision so far has already had consequences. It is impacting the flow of support. Uh, To some extent, uh, this can be compensated by increased support from other allies. And the European allies uh, and Canada are uh, stepping up, are doing more. 
Uh, and if we put together the military, the economic and the humanitarian support, uh, actually Canada and European allies are providing more support than the United States. But the United States being by far the biggest ally, of course, of course it's vital that that continue uh, to provide support. And therefore, uh, I continue to expect that they will uh, uh, be able to make a decision and hopefully as soon as possible. For the record, that was NATO's Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg speaking to reporters in Brussels today. It's a scene familiar to many of us. You're sitting in the car on a road trip with your family. All you want to do is look out the window or read a book when suddenly, boop, a sibling pokes you. You try to ignore them, turn the page, and then, boop, they poke you again. Harder this time. It's taking all your energy not to lose it when, boop, boop, boop. Now, while many of us would rather forget those kinds of childhood experiences, most of us aren't Erica Cartmill or the young great apes she's been studying. Ms. Cartmill is a professor of anthropology, cognitive science, and animal behavior. She and her colleagues have spent hours watching footage of great apes trying to shed light on a behavior they call playful teasing. And their findings, published in Proceedings of Royal Society B, demonstrate something that is both scientific and relatable. Juvenile great apes love to annoy their parents and peers. We reached Professor Cartmill in Los Angeles. Erica, describe the types of playful teasing that that you were able to document, particularly when we're talking about younger great apes. So a lot of the behaviors that we saw, I think, will be very familiar to anyone who has parented a toddler um, <laughs> and perhaps to, to those people who, who grew up with siblings, right? These are the kinds of behaviors where one individual, the teaser, will will do something that's it's mildly irritating, right? I'm, I'm going to reach over and poke you. And I might poke you gently, but then if you don't respond, I might poke you harder. And then I might pull your hair. And then I might do a somersault and land right in front of you. Um, that Some of my favorite interactions involve sort of staring close at the other's face, right? It's like <laughs> I do something, I'm going to lean in and look at you. You don't respond. Oh, I'm going to get real close. And, you know, sometimes you end up with like a juvenile ape with their face like right up in front of an adult who's like, I'm trying to ignore you. I'm trying to ignore you. (laughs) And uh, and, you know, I think I think that that's one of the things that that really characterizes these behaviors is that they're hard to ignore. And Mm -hmm. if the other individual tries to ignore them or, you know, is successful, then they escalate. They get harder and harder to ignore. I think a lot of us, we think of apes as playful anyway, but your your research is pushing that further. Just tell our listeners more about what you're bringing that's new to this conversation. So the behaviors that we were looking at aren't new behaviors, right? It's not like we we observed a, a turtle building a fire, right? The first example ever. <laughs> that's the next uh, research, you know, these yeah. Are, <laughs> exactly. That's our new project. Uh, so these are things that, that people have seen before, but they haven't looked closely at as their own kind of behavior. And I think that's really what our study was about, was to take things that fell into that gray area in between fighting and play, right? So they have some elements of aggression and they have some elements of play, but they don't have have all of the elements of either. And what we're really arguing in this work is that this gray area in between aggression and play might be something different. It might be its own behavior. What's your best guess at, at this stage as to, as to why these great apes are engaging in this kind of teasing and this playful teasing? Well, I certainly think that it's about social relationships. And I think there are several different possibilities. It could be that you're trying to test the strength of your social relationships, right? How far can I push this other individual? And that might tell you something about how likely they are to, say, back you up if you get into a fight. It could be about showing off the strength of your relationships to other individuals, right? So a way to test that might be to say, are you more likely to tease when others are watching you Mm -hmm. than if you're just one-on-one with another ape? 
A third possibility is that it's not just about testing or showing off your social relationships. It might actually help to, to strengthen or to build those relationships in the first place. You know, some of these behaviors are the sorts of things you might see in flirting as well, where it's like, you know, I try something out, I see how you respond. You know, the, the kinds of playful um, but provocative behaviors are things that are done within close relationships. And I think the question is, do they help make those relationships close? Do they test the closeness of those relationships or do they show off the closeness of those relationships? And then there's one other possibility that I'm really excited about. I think, you know, I think uh, might be the case um, is that playful teasing gives you an opportunity to practice your ability to predict others' behavior. So play broadly across the animal kingdom is often described as a way to practice behaviors that you need in adulthood, right? So you think about, um, you know, a monkey swinging in a tree, uh, in a juvenile monkey, and it's playing and it's you know, twisting upside down in all sorts of ways, doing weird behaviors that you don't see in adulthood, but it's also learning about its body. And I think with playful teasing, they might be practicing skills that will help them master their social relationships, you know, practicing predicting others' behavior. From what you saw, is it often or always age-based? You know, younger apes teasing older apes? Just give us a little more detail on that. The way that we collected our data doesn't really allow us to fully answer that question Mm -hmm. of how much more often are juveniles doing it, because Mm -hmm. the videotapes that we used were focusing and following around one juvenile ape at a time and yeah. seeing who they interacted with. And we also coded, you know, when when adults were interacting with other adults in the background, we would code those behaviors too. Within our data, we certainly saw that juveniles were doing it a lot more than adults, which is, is similar to what we find in play across juveniles of, of all species, that younger individuals are likely to play more than adults. But we can't say exactly how much. Did doing this research, you know, studying really the more joyful aspects, some of them, of of animal behavior, did it bring you joy? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I think um, when I first started this project, I, it was early days of the pandemic. And I think like many people, uh, you know, it was it was dark. I was depressed. <laughs> and the projects that I started during the pandemic are all focused on play and laughter and animal joy. <laughs> and uh, And I think, you know, in many ways that gave me something to focus on, um, you know, outside of sort of what was going on in human society at the moment. Has it changed the way you tease other people? <laughs> uh, it does give me a, a evolutionary explanation. You know, I can say, <laughs> no, no, it was. <laughs> I'm not being mean. It's just what I was built to do. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure that will go over I, I, really I, well. <laughs> Erica, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Erica Cartmill is a professor of anthropology, cognitive science, and animal behavior at Indiana University Bloomington, but we reached her in Los Angeles. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Last week, you may have heard our interview with an MSF doctor who'd been working in North Darfur. He spoke about one of the many statistics underlining a horrific situation in Sudan right now, that one child is dying every two hours at a camp for displaced people. After 10 months of fighting in the country, millions of people have been forced from their homes. And this week, the World Health Organization warned 3.5 million children there are malnourished. 
Many who have fled Sudan are now in neighboring Chad, and that's where Jan Egland has been this week. He's the Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council. We reached him in Jemena, Chad. And a warning, some details in this conversation are disturbing. Jan, you were just at the border meeting with refugees. What stands out from those conversations? I must say I'm utterly shaken. I'm uh, I'm numb by hearing story after story from family after family of horrific violence, gang rapes, the killing of uh, male youth, parents being killed in front of their children. And it's not one family here or there that has these stories. All have these stories. And we're talking about 700,000 people who have fled to eastern Chad from Darfur, where there has been the most horrific ethnically uh, oriented violence, especially against the Masali tribe, which now have had to flee to the poorest place on earth, which is eastern Chad. What is their reality day to day when they get to Chad, given the circumstances there? No, I, I wish they would then get the best possible care and the best possible protection, the best possible aid. But we're underfunded and overstretched beyond belief as aid groups in eastern Chad, as we are as aid groups inside Darfur. The world has forgotten that Sudan has had one of the worst wars in recent memory. It's the highest number of internally displaced on the planet, more than Ukraine more than Syria, more than anywhere else. And those who have managed to flee the country to Chad do not receive assistance uh, again. I remember in 2003, mm-hmm. 2004, 20 years ago, Darfur was every month on the agenda of the President Bush in the U- United States. Prime Minister Blair in London, the uh, Canadian Prime Minister, the French President, etc., where is the outrage today? Where, Where is, is it? Why do you think? Why do you think? Why do you feel the world has forgotten? Well, I think it's a combination of factors. Number one, it seems when we're even worse now than before in in being able to handle more than one crisis at a time. So it's it's Ukraine and and it is the horrors of Gaza that is taking all attention. But then I think there's also this uh, introvert nationalistic uh, winds that uh, basically means that there is less interest in 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 these uh, young women who have uh, had their life destroyed because of sexual violence. These orphans that uh, I met the mother; she had eight children. She had taken in five orphans. I mean, it, it's you, you can't believe it, really. And, and the operation, our operation is less than 10% funded for 2024. <laughs> I'm glad you are showing some interest here from the Canadian broadcasting because it's, it's not making headlines anywhere. When you talk about being there 20 years ago, the response, as you've said, is, is quite different. What is different in terms of what you're seeing on the ground? The difference is the following. It's three times more people who flee the violence now. It's the same kind of horrific violence, and it's ethnically based uh, now as then. It's just much bigger now. I remember at that time, too, there was also celebrities, you know, getting in the, in the front uh, in front of the story and saying this is why the world should care. Does that help? Should that be happening now? That always helps because it sort of galvanizes uh, attention. And uh, I mean, George Clooney was there with us uh, at the time. So many others, because that was also because the media was um, m- more uh, interested. The there was political support. The Security Council was discussing it. I I, I met with George Clooney uh, as he was uh, briefing the Security Council just after I was briefing the Security Council doesn't happen today. We need a reboot of global compassion so that it is needs and needs alone that decides who gets attention, who gets aid, who gets resources in the world that should be able to help people like the, uh, the, the, the ones I've seen uh, and been, been with in recent days. 
Just before I came in to speak with you, Jan, uh, across the wires, uh, Reuters is reporting that France is set to hold ministerial meetings in in mid-April to help Sudan and its neighboring countries cope with the fallout of the war. Uh, The French foreign minister is agreeing with you, saying this cannot become a a forgotten crisis. Does does that give you any hope that, that people are paying attention? It, it gives me it gives me some hope. Uh, and the EU uh, commissioner for for aid was here. There is some interest in in capitals, but it's not it's not making any uh, waves. I, where are the aid packages? Where where's what uh, what we were able to muster for Ukraine? Specifically, what would you like to hear from the Canadian government? Well, the Canadian government has uh, international standing. It has uh, the power of, of initiatives. I'd like to see uh, an, an initiative also for from their side. And it's important that we, we have like-minded countries that have always professed to seek to defend human rights wherever they are trampled on. This is such a case. I hope to see even more Canadian initiatives and more Canadian funding for the aid operation here. What is going to happen to those women you met and the orphans, the women who've, who've suffered sexual assaults? The hardest thing of these kind of missions, when you're really there and spend so much time with, with people that have suffered so much, is to leave. Because I cannot guarantee there will be the aid that is needed. There was one young uh, woman, 28, she cried continuously for an hour as she told about how she had been abused, sexually abused. She wanted to be an accountant. So her dream is to sit in a bank (laughs) and help people. And she said, all my dreams are gone. Uh, Now I sit in a tent and I hardly get enough food. All my dreams are are gone. I I hope uh, we will not fail uh, women like that, children like that, people like that. Jan, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Jan Eglund is the Security General of the Norwegian Refugee Council. We reached him in Jemena, Chad. We reached out to Global Affairs Canada and received a statement. It reads in part that Canada remains, quote, deeply concerned by the ongoing conflict in Sudan. It also said the government sent $170 million in humanitarian aid to several African countries last year, more than $40 million of which went to humanitarian assistance inside Sudan. To pour the perfect pint of Guinness, we are told you must carefully observe the two-step pouring process. Pull the tap toward you to fill the glass to the Guinness logo. Leave it to rest. Then push the tap away from you to fill the glass completely. You can even make the shape of a shamrock in the creamy head. Although, if you do that in an Irish bar, you may end up wearing the Guinness. But not everyone believes this process is strictly necessary. Most recently, an Irish bartender ignited a brouhaha by saying it's just a marketing tactic that has no effect on the taste or the experience. And of course, an Irish bartender knows what he's talking about. But so do scientists like Andrew Alexander. He's a professor of chemical physics at the University of Edinburgh who has studied the bubbles in beer, specifically Guinness. Andrew, what does your ideal pint of Guinness look like? Well, my ideal pint of Guinness would be served in a pint glass. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be nice and settled with a black body up for most of the glass until about the top, let's say, half to three quarters of an inch where there'd be a nice creamy white head. Yeah. And, and does it involve a two-step pour? Uh, absolutely. I'm definitely mm-hmm. for the two-step pour. Being very uh, strong with that preference. I can hear that in your voice. You can- can you imagine yeah. it without a two-step pour? Well, I think if you don't have the two-step pour, and I've tried it myself, yeah. um, you run the risk of, of serving a pint that maybe just doesn't look quite right, but maybe also doesn't isn't optimal, you know, isn't isn't where it should be. Look is one thing, but does it affect the taste? 
Yeah, I think it does, actually. And, you know, I think it's to do with this this head at the top. And that's Mm -hmm. really what the two-step pour is about, that when you uh, do the first step, you fill the glass maybe at about sort of 45 degrees angle. So it's sort of tilted so that the, the, the liquid's going onto the glass as it rolls in. It just sort of controls the the flow and controls where the bubbles are going. Fill it up to about, let's say, three quarters and then let the glass sit. And, you know, whilst you are pouring it, all these bubbles have been going into the glass with the liquid and they need some time to settle Mm -hmm. to the the top. They they come together. uh, The big ones will coalesce. They'll, They'll join together. Uh, and also, I think there's a point there where the expert puller can see what's what's needed for the next step. Mm-hmm. And for the next step is just pouring it straight in from the top um, slowly to be able to control the thickness of that head and how compact it is. And I think that does change the the feel of the head and also the the flavor. Whatever beer you're you're pouring, though, if you're doing it at the right angle and the right speed, Shouldn't it come out perfectly? I mean, it does when I pour it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, Though I'm not an expert in Guinness or any beer for that matter, but I'm just good at yeah, it, I guess. So most, most, most beers have carbon dioxide uh, in the bubbles and, you know, because they've been fermented that way mm-hmm. uh, and they're, they're poured with uh, carbon dioxide pressure behind it. Um, sometimes it's a little bit of mixture of nitrogen in there, but with Guinness, it's, it's all nitrogen. And so the bubbles are different, and therefore that's why it's so important to be able to control the head because these bubbles are so small. They're much smaller than carbon dioxide bubbles, so it's important to control the size. Guinness feels the same way. As you know, they're quite specific about it. There's a whole FAQ section uh, on their site about the the two-part pour, and it it picks up on what, what you were saying, but I'll read it for our listeners. It says, first start with a clean dry glass, that's key apparently, pour the Guinness draft into a glass tilted at 45 degrees until it is three quarters full, allow the surge to settle before filling the glass all the way to the top. Your perfect pint, complete with its creamy white head, just domed above the glass rim, is then ready to drink. So you've got all the steps. You didn't mention the clean, dry glass. If I, so I wanted to make sure to underline that to the the purists who might be who might be listening. <laughs> but you you know yeah. we we told our listeners a moment ago that about these claims that the two step pour is really a marketing tactic to speed up bar service. Does the science say something different? Well, I mean, for sure, if you organize your bar and you pour them this way, then it means that you're going to keep control of of, uh, the, of all the pints that you pour. But I do think it is going to affect the flavor because when you take a mouthful of the liquid, you're going to get a bit of the foam at the top and you're going to get a bit of the dark liquid underneath. And what I'm saying is that in the foam, um, if you've done it properly, there should be a really sort of... Um, homogeneous, really sort of even distribution of these little bubbles. And those little bubbles are sort of flavor attractors. You know, bubbles really like to attract flavor molecules to their surface. And so when you take a a taste of that foam, you're going to feel and taste the difference as you're drinking the pint. So yeah, I think there's some science in there as well. Do you like to consume your beer when it's cold or room temperature? Ah, now there's a there's a question. <laughs> so I like I, uh, so some people I think prefer Guinness when it's uh, warmer. I definitely prefer it when it when it's colder. I wouldn't say you know as cold as an ice cold glass of lager or a pilsner, mm-hmm. but cer- certainly on the colder side myself. How about you? Uh, it depends. I prefer cold though. Definitely cold. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lukewarm, especially Guinness would be. It would be even more like a meal and not a pleasant one, I think. No, it's not something I expect to be warm. It's not a soup. It should be yeah. refreshing, uh, yeah. I would I would say, as a non-expert, as a non-connoisseur, certainly not at your level. But would you, should you, have you ever sent a beer back? Oh, uh, not, a, not a pint of Guinness, I have to say. Um, because you, you were afraid marketing. to or because it wasn't, because it was perfect every time? Um, I've sent it back, be- not not Guinness, but I've sent back uh, other beer, which has just been probably in the cask too long. Mm. Uh, or, you know, if the pipes in the in the pub that you're drinking in are not super squeaky clean, then, then that can give you a bad pint. Andrew, thank you. And cheers. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. 
Andrew Alexander is a professor of chemical physics at the University of Edinburgh. I don't know whether it was a bad call, but it was a recorded one. Liberal MP Rob Oliphant is under scrutiny today after a phone call he made to a constituent went public in a story by the CBC's Evan Dyer. In it, Mr. Oliphant criticized the government's policy and Justin Trudeau's handling of the war in Gaza. The conversation, recorded without Mr. Oliphant's knowledge, addresses, among other things, the genocide case against Israel and the decision to defund a UN relief agency. And it draws attention to the rift between the government's official positions and the beliefs of individual MPs. In this case, one who is also the parliamentary secretary for Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie. Salma Zahed is the Liberal MP for Scarborough Centre. She also led earlier efforts to push the government to call for a ceasefire. We reached Ms. Zahed in Ottawa. Salma Zahed, can you relate to what your fellow Liberal Rob Oliphant is, is saying in this leaked conversation, that he disagrees with the action this government has taken? First of all, like, it's really sad that, like, uh, this conversation was being recorded without uh, his consent. Uh, mm-hmm. But the thing is that, like, I generally go by, like, what I say here in House of Common, I say to my constituents. And, mm-hmm. like, what I hear from my constituents, I say it here at the House of Common. And I will always try to be a voice of my people from Scarborough Center mm-hmm. here in Ottawa. It has been leaked, though. So when when you hear or read that, that that's part of what he said that he disagrees with the government has done, specifically on the UNRWA money. Did you relate to it as, as you read it? What, what feeling did it evoke in you to hear that? You know, you know my position on UNRWA, and I said it very loud and clear, that I agree that those people who are involved in something, they should be penalized, and I'm glad that UNRWA has terminated the contracts of those people who are alleged to be involved. The 12 or 13 people, yeah. Yes, so they have terminated, so this should be fully investigated, and if there is, like, then there should be consequences for them. But we should not be penalizing, like, those over 2 million people living in Gaza who are going through humanitarian crisis, and I think that it is, like, the government of Canada should restore this funding. When when he he was in this tape, Mr. Oliphant went on to say that he felt that decision, in his words, quote, I'm going to be very clear, it was political, unquote. Have you thought that as well, that the government's decisions on this issue have been more about politics and appeasing allies rather than doing what it thinks is, is right? Um, see, my position is very clear on this, that uh, we should not penalize the uh, people who are relying on that. I, like, as you know, that I was in that region, although I was not in Gaza, but I was in that region, like, uh, from January 13th to January 18th, and I visited uh, the UNRWA mm-hmm. school uh, in uh, Jordan Amman, and as well as, like, uh, I saw uh, the work which they are doing, like, I was at uh, in Bethlehem at uh, Ida refugee camp, uh, they have uh, UNRWA school there also. I talked with the students uh, mm-hmm. studying at uh, the UNRWA school in Jordan Amman. I talked with the director of education. They are doing really very important work. You have been very vocal, as you said, yes. since since yeah. the beginning, back in October, calling for a ceasefire. There are, there are a handful of other MPs that have been vocal uh, alongside you. Others have not. So, so the fact that this is a leaked tape, and that that Mr. Oliphant is not saying this out loud, that more people are not speaking out as you have. Does that frustrate you? Does that concern you? Or do you understand where they're coming from? Um, See, the thing is that, like, um, it's up to every MP uh, what they want to say. Like, I believe in this, and I have been very vocal about this Mm -hmm. issue. I have been trying to represent my people of Cabo Center here, and many of my colleagues also have been like speaking about this issue and what it means to their constituents. So I think as elected representatives, it is our job to represent our constituents and to represent our communities. 
liberal party brings like members of parliament from diverse communities mm-hmm. diverse ridings and we have been having these uh, difficult conversations within our party also different people have different perspective and i think it's a it's important to have those healthy debates within our yeah. caucuses do you feel that you are able to have a healthy debate yes. that you have the space to say what you yes, want or has... like uh, i the very fact that i have been stating what i believe in mm-hmm. In regards to the UNRWA funding, in regards to the ICJ ruling, in regards to the uh, making sure that the voice of the vulnerable Palestinian is heard, I think speaks of that, that like MPs can talk about the issues which matter to them and they can stand for the values they believe in. Yesterday, uh, Canada signed a joint statement along with New Zealand and Australia saying it is, quote, gravely concerned about a potential ground invasion into Rafah by Israeli forces, saying a military operation there would be, quote, catastrophic, and they're urging the Israeli government to, quote, not go down this path, end quote. What did that statement signal to you, and, and is it enough? I think it's a good start. It's a movement toward the right direction. Mm-hmm. It is really very important. Like, the people were told to move to Rafa, okay? Like, this was, like, supposed to be, like, a safe place, and people from north moved there. Right now, this is the only city which is considered to be, quote-unquote, like, safe place. But attacking that and having an operation there, where will these people go? They have no place to go. So I think enough is enough, and it is really very important that this military action doesn't happen, and uh, those like civilians should be protected. Is this statement strong enough in your view? It's a good start in a right direction. What would you want to be the next step? If the if uh, uh, Netanyahu ignores this, or like then there should be some consequences. Do you have specifics in mind? Um, uh, let's see how these things go and like what is the reaction. So let's uh, uh, see how these mm-hmm. things unfold. What are your constituents telling you? I know you've said before that, that you have constituents with loved ones in Gaza. What are they telling you now? Mm, see, many people have lost their loved ones in Gaza mm-hmm. and many people are stuck in the war zone. I know like uh, government of Canada was able to get some Canadians out of that war zone, but still there are some Canadians citizens and PR holders who are there. People have like uh, their uh, siblings, their uh, extended families. Uh, Minister Miller has announced a program. I hope uh, we will be able to get them because people are really worried about their loved ones. Have you seen a shift, you know, since you were, you and the others were so vocal in October? Do you feel like your voice has been heard enough? We are like, I am pushing that, like whatever I can do, like whatever tools I have in my toolbox, I am using them and I will continue to use those until we find a resolution to this. Salma Zahid, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Salma Zahed, the MP for Scarborough Centre, but we reached her in Ottawa. We reached out to Rob Oliphant for an interview and were told he wasn't available. A team of UK archaeologists have uncovered an egg that's a little past its best before date, by 1,700 years, give or take. The Oxford archaeology team dug the egg up at an old Roman site in the modern-day town of Aylesbury. And it isn't just the egg's age that's remarkable. After all those years, the thing is still intact, and now the team's discovered that it's also still full of liquid. Edward Bedolf leads the team. We reached him in Aylesbury. What does a 1,700-year-old egg look like, Edward? Well, it uh, it looks like uh, an everyday egg that you find in the supermarket, except that it's not um, it's not brown or white like a lot of uh, eggs are, but it's it's uh, speckled. It um, and it's and it's quite small, so it'll certainly be um, on the small side for a, an egg that you buy at a supermarket. But otherwise, it looks like a looks like a, a, a you know a, a normal egg. What kind of bird is it from? Uh, we don't know for sure, mm-hmm. but we think it's a domestic fowl, and and most likely given that we found it on a Roman settlement site, that, that, that's, that, that it's a chicken's egg, but, but we, 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 uh, we're not uh, absolutely uh, certain. You're leaning towards chicken. Uh, a couple things to dissect from what you said there. We'll talk about the, the site where this was found, but in addition to this discovery, just finding this egg is, is 
incredible. I can recognize that. But then the next level of discovery was that 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 this egg, it's it's intact and there's liquid inside. Yes, that's right. I mean, it, it, I mean, simply having a finding a finding this uh, um, this egg that that's almost two thousand years old, one thousand seven hundred years old. Really, that's what that's where we're dating it. To find that intact is is absolutely amazing. But to then find that it um, contains uh, liquid of some sort is is, is absolutely absolutely um, is, is is just as amazing, and it really adds to the to the. To the uh, to the specialness of the of, of the of the discovery, nothing like this has been found in the UK, and in in, in worldwide terms, it's it's pretty it's pretty special. It's pretty um, it's pretty rare. So so um, so so yes, on 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 both fronts, it's uh, it's it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, you had to scan it to to figure out that that there is liquid inside. But how how is it possible that it stayed intact? Nothing seeped out, not even a little crack for all of this time. That uh, that really is is uh, down to the environment in which it in in it uh, in which it was uh, preserved. It was found in a pit which had been dug uh, in a Roman settlement, and the pit had been dug initially to extract water for brewing because it, well, the Romans just like everyone else likes it, likes uh, you know <laughs> likes to drink, and they and they at least used to make their own. Uh, Beer. They made this their own beer in this in this settlement, but after they stopped using it to draw water for brewing, it remained wet and bog- a little bit boggy, and um, and it was used as a as a place where people stopped and threw in coins or other objects as offerings, uh, offerings to the gods or, or or for good luck or something like that. And they also uh, they also put food offerings, and these eggs are part of a, a food offering. And it was in that uh, in that in that special environment that the that the egg survived because it had sunk into the into the into the waterlogged silts and muds that uh, accumulated in this pit. There were other eggs there. Um, they did not emerge unscathed, as I understand it. How does an archaeologist react when those eggs crack? Well, <laughs> yes, it was um, it, it was really um, absolutely. Uh, Amazing, just just to get one. As I said, the 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 environment was was very special, which meant that 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 any change in atmosphere would would be a risk to to the eggs. So so when the eggs were exposed, as the mud was carefully being uh, being uh, being uh, taken away from the from the objects, unfortunately, um, two of them cracked, and the uh, whatever liquid was inside it seemed to have seeped out. But what what the what the excavator immediately noticed was, was the uh, was the was the uh, was the smell oh, that came out of these of these eggs, and and it was yes uh, very much like rotten eggs, and which which by that time after after uh, seventeen hundred years <laughs> the, the eggs would be. But how how did that excavator describe that odor? Well, I, th- I think I think he. I think the excavator was very um, was very t- taken aback by, by the smell, and oh, I, and I know that the excavator thought that it was. His uh, his uh, favorite find, I think. Uh, you know, it was uh, it was yeah. such an amazing find. So, so yes, and, it really had an impact on him. And how do you investigate this intact egg now further to find out precisely what is inside? Well, that's um, I said this. Um, we ha- that's the um, that's the that's the question really because nobody you know this is such a unique object that that nobody really has 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 done this sort of thing before. So so we'll. we'll uh, we're all sort of uh, thinking uh, carefully about how to how to do it. So we, that's why we're talking to the Natural History Museum and 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 drawing on their expertise on 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 dealing with eggs. But but it's, it's still a first for them as well. You know, we're we're we're, we're now talking about how to extract that uh, liquid, and that I think that would involve something like somehow uh, we we um, drill there. Uh, a tiny hole um, in the egg and extract the uh, extract the contents. Yeah, delicate matters makes me think of Easter eggs yeah. when when kids drain the Easter eggs before painting them. Though a lot more is at stake than the Easter egg hunt in yeah, this yeah. case. Yeah, that's One. right. Well, uh, in, yes, well, in a in a in a way, it's, it is it is a similar process, but but we won't be painting and no, <laughs> but, no. This but, is a work of art in and of itself. Let me just ask you yeah. one final question, Edward. Our producer I did some digging uh, of his own and found out that in addition to your your archaeological work, you've also written a cookbook, a James Bond cookbook in particular, and there's a connection to eggs there too. Is it is it true that uh, Bond, James Bond, uh, love that martini, but also an egg? 
Oh, oh yes, 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 I, yes, I, yes, I, I uh, am a bit of a fan, and I have written yeah. this uh, cookbook, and and it is, um, I mean, James Bond's um, favorite food is scrambled eggs. <laughs> so, so shaken, yes, not scurred, uh, stirred, and, and scrambled. Okay. Yes, that's, that's right. <laughs> but 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 I but I think think I think I think he might draw the line at uh, at having scrambled eggs made with this. About uh, 1,700-year-old uh, 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 <laughs> uh, age. Thank you for all of this. Nice speaking with you. Good to talk to you. Edward Biddulph is a project manager with Oxford Archaeology. We reached him in Aylesbury in the United Kingdom. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also find our show online at cbc.ca slash AIH. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Samira Moyedin. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.